Amen. In John chapter 19, we read something that Jesus says. And it's profound as all things from Jesus are. But, but the situation in John chapter 19, it's the image of our Savior hanging on a cross. Excruciating pain is constant. And as he feels the weight of our sin and separation from the Father, there comes a point where he says, it is finished. It is finished. The penalty for our sin is paid through the work he has done on the cross. There is nothing left to add to this work. It is finished. And Christ our Lord dies. The work was finished, praise God. But maybe the first question we ask is, does that mean that Jesus has absolutely nothing else to do for the remainder of eternity? Well, the answer to that is no. Uh, we know that he, he ascends to the Father. He's an advocate for us there. He's the high priest. He sends the Holy Spirit back to us. We know that he's returning again. But at, at least in some sense, he, in very real sense, he never has to do that work again. And now, for a moment that stretches through eternity, Christ gets to watch and be with all of those that he can now be with as a result of the work that he did. Now, when we flip to the front of our Bibles, we actually find something similar about an eternal moment that stretches forever, which certainly intersects with our understanding of who God is and how we are supposed to live. If you're joining us today and you're new, my name is Alex. I'm an associate pastor here at Faith Covenant Church. If, if you haven't been with us for a couple weeks, you might have missed. We started a new series. Uh, last year, we went through the Gospel of Matthew. We, we went through the Epistle of James. Well, we're, we're switching gears and going to the beginning. We are going to Genesis. Genesis means beginning. It's the first word in the Bible if you're reading it in Hebrew, which means it's not the most original title, but it definitely captures the essence of where we're at and what we're looking at. Last week, as we went through chapter 1, we talked about the creation of all things out of nothing through the power and will of the Father. And in that chapter, we found truth about what, in part, the created purpose of humankind is. And we're going to reflect more on that as we go through chapter 2 today. So I'd invite you, if you have your Bible with you, to go ahead and find chapter 2 of Genesis. Again, that's going to be very near the beginning of your Bible. <laughs> chapter 2 starts... In many ways, where chapter 1 ends, that is, in the recounting of the days of creation. In chapter 1, we read about six days in which God formed everything, and we start chapter 2 with day number 7. Everything at this point is done. Creation is completed, and God's response to the work being finished is here recorded. We read, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So we're going to ease into the chapter. But fair warning, things are going to pick up very quickly. The first scene, if we borrow from the imagery of televisions and things like that, is that for all the created things, 
They were good, and they were, as in, they were intended to be. It is a creation made as only one who is perfect and can create perfectly can make. Through the progression of creation of night and day, the creator displays his glory through all creation. And once the work is done, the pattern stops. It's not that the pattern breaks. It's not broken. The stop or pause, or here we read, rest comes in this form. There's no record of night and day passing on the seventh day. The implication we find in scripture that of, of God's rest that we read about here, it is eternal and never ends. As the one who makes all things, we do read one final thing that is, is made. And it's a designation eternally assigned to day seven. It is made holy, meaning set apart. So when we speak of Sabbath, of, of a day of rest, or the seventh day, it is, or should be, remembering the holiness of God, the work he has done, giving him glory. For us today, to rest from work should likewise offer opportunity to reflect not simply on what we have done, but what God has done. After all, as God rests and surveys creation, all of creation is singing his glory, pointing to him. So in our Sabbath, we should likewise take in the totality of what we see that reveals God in our lives. And if we take a cue from creation, we give God glory. This is part of the created order of things that in our rest, as well as in our work, we would glorify God. So in our Sabbaths, in our days of rest, how are we doing? The writer of Hebrews sends word to fellow Jewish Christians. He has a deep concern that they are not living like those who understand the rest of God. We read in Hebrews chapter 4 in verse 1. We read, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. It is a chapter that recounts the disobedience of the Israelites in the chapter before. And in many ways it mourns that so many missed out on the blessing they had free and open access to through God. May that not be true of us. It turns out that in obedience to God, to the God of the universe, we will fill our minds and our lives with all the details and examples of things that can fulfill us and give us an abundant time of rest, giving God glory. And as God has so pleased in his creation, we need to recognize that first, when we enter our eternal rest, it is not so much our rest as entering into God's rest. And second, in that rest, there is eternal opportunity to behold God's glory and give praise for all he is, as well as what he has done. This, again, is affirmed again and again. As the purpose of creation. So again, how are we doing? I, I think in our culture, we have to ask first, well, do I even rest? <laughs> and if yes, do I spend time while I'm resting considering the things that give God glory? As a culture, we are not great at resting. And when we do, it tends to be focused on our well-being. Certainly, we appreciate times of rest, of, of, of physically taking a break or taking a moment to enjoy the things around us. 
But the truest well-being is finding that in our rest, it is not about us, but about the creator. And our greatest refreshment and joy that can sustain us is found in taking time to recognize all the ways in which God has revealed himself in our lives and in creation. That is an encouragement that can sustain us through the trials of all the other days. When we grasp more fully the Sabbath in our own lives, this is the created purpose of all creation, that the activities and growth and life of creation would be an ongoing platform for giving God praise, glory, and honor. That is what it was created as, and it will be what it will be again. It's at this point in Genesis chapter 2 that we kind of leave the creation account in the form of days behind. We've, we've completed an episode, if you will, but it seems to jump back to focus more closely on a previous thing. It, it seems to be an extended flashback where we peek in on the creation of humans. It is a time before sin, before the ground was cultivated for harvest. We see reference, if you're reading through the scripture here, of that, that there's no shrubs or plants growing, not because there were no no plants, but there were none of man's cultivation. It's a hint of the fall of man that is soon coming. We don't have time to cover every verse in Genesis chapter 2, so we are going to jump to verse 7. There in verse 7, we do read this. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. If chapter 1 is the origin story of all things, chapter 2 is the origin story of man. And what we find in our illustrious past is dust. Last night, my kids were talking about what things were made of at the dinner table. And my son told me, he has this theory that, that fish are made out of fish sticks. <laughs> so, so close. Later, my daughter emphatically told me, Dad, I'm made out of dust. I was like, hey, you've been reading my sermon notes? Like, what, where'd that come from? But she was very proud of it. But what we find is that the material of our making is about as common and as basic as materials come. The only thing that elevates this material is what God does with it. And that idea could probably be an entire sermon on its own. What God does here is he breathes life into its nostrils. You know, one of the more common Christian images of, of humans in the hands of the creator we have is the idea of, of a pot or a clay vessel in the hands of the potter. God makes us a vessel of clay and we are created for his purposes. The illustration is very useful because of the, the cheapness of clay, which finds value only in the hands of the creator. It's given purpose as a created thing. And that purpose is also designated at the point of its creation. Something similar is happening here, but it's more intense and more personal. Because this... This is not simply the creator making a thing, but it is the creator making and giving something of himself to the created thing. This is man made from dust, and the God who creates the universe comes very near to breathe life into the creation. If you breathe on someone, you can probably test it on a neighbor near you, uh, it means you've come pretty close. It's an image of intimacy 
which is not shared with any other part of creation. It is a heavy clue to us about God's desire for relationship and closeness, specifically with humankind. So make no mistake that the foundation for our understanding of God's desire to be with us starts very clearly at the beginning. And an unchanging God still desires a personal relationship, a closeness with every one of you. Whatever you may think otherwise, from the foundation of the world, God reveals what is true about himself. And from the beginning, we find that God gives something of himself to the created man. And what God gives when he comes near to man is life. So when Jesus later says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, we acknowledge that man now only finds life in Christ, right? And that is through that incredible work that happened on the cross, yes? Last week we, we referenced John chapter 1 where there... We talk about the word being in the beginning with God and was God. And through the word, nothing that was made has been made. The word was Jesus. But later the word comes and dwelt among us. That is the image of the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. It's the Christmas story. Jesus comes to earth. God coming close to humans again. And once again... The result of that intimacy and closeness is humans receive life and become a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. It turns out that's who God is and that's what God does. The creation account is not just an interesting footnote in the history of humanity, but it is a revelation of who God is, and we see what God does. Don't underestimate the deep truth and purposes being laid out for us to see, even at the beginning of all things. These truths remain, and they establish a filter by which we should interpret the entirety of Scripture. Here at the beginning, God gives man life, and as things continue, we enter into another familiar scene. It's a scene that describes a fantastic garden, which God, in his love for man, he has made a place for man to live, to work, to steward. Yes, work. <laughs> and we read in verse 8 and 9, The Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, following these verses, again, we don't have time to hit every verse. There's a description of the garden's location, which should give us pause. While the garden may represent many things, such as God's desire to have a place of fellowship with us or to provide for us, it is also as best as we can tell, an actual place. And into this place, we read in verse 15, that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This was the plan. A place where man could work before God, in relationship with God, bringing glory to God in creation while in fellowship with him. And in reality, that is kind of still the plan we should be trying to follow with our lives. But in this garden, a particular note, we read of two trees. 
you can't help but focus in on these. One being the tree of life, the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, one of the trees is so, so, so good for man, while the other lets man know pain and heartache and broken fellowship with God. We read in verse 16, God saying, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The man has life breathed into him, and there is a tree in the garden that at the very least represents ongoing life and one that gives death. We know that God gives life. So there's something about one of these trees that, that engages something about the life-giving elements of God. We don't fully understand what that tree specifically did. But what we do know is that there's this contrast. And the other tree brings death. We ask ourselves so often, why did God put this in the garden? Have you ever wondered that? Like, is this not like putting poison on something you're about to give a loved one. Like, why, why would you risk it? Like, why would you do that? It's a very human question to ask. Though in reality, if we come from a standpoint of righteousness and holiness, the question we should probably start with is why would someone want to know evil? Like, that, that actually makes a lot less sense. Like, why... Why would you be tempted to know evil? If you only know the right things, do you really need to know the wrong things also? Like, does that help you somehow? It seems it would only be a distraction from the purity of what you already know, and it's only going to introduce risk into your life that you would make a decision based on misinformation and to a much greater degree and a much more damaging degree. So it is with good and evil. One of the reasons I think that this tree is put in the garden is, I think it's simple. You might not. Uh, we are made in God's image. God is good. God's will is good. God in thought and action is good. God does not change. He will be good and demonstrate good and be good. He is holy, and that means he is set apart, not simply in his being, but that evil it has no part of him in his presence. He's set apart from that. So man, likewise, created in God's image, he is an image bearer in the purity and consistency of choosing what is good. And in obedience to God's will, he lives a life set apart from evil, which this tree gets to represent. So by the tree being there, we actually are able to embrace the image a little more fully. We have to remember that as far as we can tell, Adam is morally pure, not morally ignorant. I don't think he unwittingly brings honor and glory to God through his work in the garden, through dispensing of duties like naming the animals, which we'll read about in a little bit. He knows God, speaks with God, loves God, serves God, and in this he knows what is good. He does not know evil because of some deficiency in him. He doesn't know evil because of his purity, because of his holiness that he has received from God. This is pure obedience to divine authority. We're reading about a sinless man at this point. So when we look ahead and we see Jesus, the son of man, he was tempted and remains pure and holy. The first man likewise will have his chance. 
So into this life and this paradise setting, God gives this command. You know, don't eat from that tree. <laughs> a law for man to live by. Sadly, we read much later, Paul writing from Rome these words, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sins. There's a great disconnect between where Paul is and where Adam is at this point. Because today we read about a time when rules and laws were not associated with our shortcomings, with human brokenness and sin. There's a law on the books in Genesis 2 that through coming deception and perhaps a desire to know things outside of what God has providentially given, soon the good order of all things is broken. So to hear more about trees and the choice man makes, you have to come back next week. If we're following uh, television kind of analogies, we have to leave a couple cliffhangers here and there. Uh, This week, as we continue, some of you are ready. We're going to pick up in verse 18 and continue to the end of the chapter. We read in the second half, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall in a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping... He took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Into paradise comes one more creation. Into this morally pure, God-honoring man's life comes something that he needed. In the narrative of creation, we have only seen God declare the goodness of the created things. But here's one thing that's not good. Man's aloneness. So God makes man a helper. And we've in past sermons touched on this word helper, uh, that, that one has to recognize it's not a diminutive word. It doesn't uh, refer to a hierarchy or power status. It actually denotes function. In fact, God himself is described as a helper at certain points. But we see here at the beginning, before she is created, God has a plan for woman's purpose within creation and within the relationship she has with a man. So there's a function established. Also, when we look to her creation in the narrative, we do see right before this all the animals kind of being paraded before Adam. He's naming them or identifying them. In fact, some of their identity might be associated with how he names them, that there's a corresponding reality. And he recognizes that there are, among some of the animals, pairs that have a corresponding identity or reality or made in the same way, but he recognizes that there is none that shares the same thing as him that shares his identity. He is alone. And the solution here is some divine surgical procedure, which does Adam know this is happening before God, the great anesthesiologist, apparently, uh, puts him under and takes a rib from him. 
and it seems without the slightest effect on the sleeping man. Because of this, the woman now is going to be identified as literally as possible as the same and made from the same substance as man. He says, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She is not made from dust or something else so that there would be confusion. She is of the same substance as Adam and is in some sense as literally part of who he is as the rib that she came from was part of him. The creation of woman casts truth throughout the scope of scripture about the sanctity of the union between man and woman and roles also within the marriage. Now, why in marriage do we proclaim something about what God has joined together? Let no man separate. It's a familiar phrase. If you don't know, that's actually something Jesus said. <laughs> that's a reason to say it, right? Uh, but, but here it is. Here's the root of it. Treat the union of the two as literally as possible. It is not simply a statement about sexual union, but that in the divine plan, in created order, that there is in function and in unity, a woman and man come together, complementing and achieving God's plans together. And with a very literal sense, the cleaving of two together is not just a sexual statement, but one about their identities aligning and unifying to God's created purpose to give him glory. We, we don't come together as one during sexual union alone, but in marriage, the man and woman are to think of themselves as unified or singular, much as the term one flesh would also seem to imply. That may seem kind of weird, but it is what we're reading about. They're the same image bearers, the same flesh. They also are the, have the same amount of nakedness, apparently. Yeah, let's talk about it. Despite all the Renaissance art, that let's just suppose it's the kind of Renaissance art that depicts something we would call modesty. You know, the well-placed trees and bushes, the extra long hair that basically operates as clothing, what we find in the garden shouldn't even be understood in categories of modesty or immodesty. That is us taking a current idea and projecting it onto the story. If this is anything related to body image, it's not about self-positivity or affirmation of self. The nakedness is a manifestation of something deeper and internal. It's not confidence, not boldness, not acceptance. It's a manifestation that there has been no relational pain. No dishonesty, no greed, no distrust, no dishonor, no separation. There is nothing inside that separates the man from the woman. No relational barrier, no secrets that are being hidden to protect oneself. Nothing like that. Total openness, total trust. And here we have a union of two people fully accepting their created functions, which leads to unparalleled harmony and openness with one another and God. So what are clothes? What do I have to hide on the Garden of Eden at this point? Nothing. Nothing is the answer. Nothing is hidden in the garden. So what is seen is beauty and love and relationship that rather than being hidden, only continually reveals the glory of God through this, his creation. Gary Thomas asked in his book, Sacred Marriage, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than make us happy? 
In asking that question, I, I do think he nails it. That, that we are created to be holy like he is holy. We are the image bearers of the holy God. And if we are increasingly set apart as holy, we are increasingly going to reveal and point a world toward the glory of God. Yeah, let, let's talk about that kind of marriage. But to start, one of the first questions many Christian children raised over the past 300 years have learned to answer in the context of a church class, is this question, what is the chief end or purpose of man? It's part of a lot of classes that have been covered in those years. The answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Within the context of creation, that fits like a glove. That was the original setup in the garden, and so the purpose is interwoven not simply into the story of nature, but of man and woman and the unity experienced between them. If we look at the story, though, we do see that the man comes first in the story. Chronological order doesn't dictate necessarily importance, power, or hierarchy. But what we do see in the story, at the very least, is that man receives the charge from God to work in the garden. He's the one who receives the instructions. He, he receives the charge to work in this garden, in this paradise, to take care of it. That work is done while in relationship with God and brings glory to God, orienting man's thoughts toward God. So then in Genesis 2, what is the charge or function the woman receives? Sunday school answers where you just, it says to help. To help and in helping to end man's aloneness. So she very clearly joins the work of the man. The ultimate end of all their efforts are God's glory. And one should imagine there is incredible joy in this kind of unity between the two. This is a picture of a successful marriage, if ever I have read one. But if we're talking about success, let's ask a more basic question. How is man's success by, by this measure? Like, how do we measure man's success? If we're looking for benchmarks, should we say... How the man is working toward God's glory wherever he is placed should be one of the benchmarks for how successful a man is, the chief end of man. The woman then, by Genesis 2 standards, how is she helping the man work toward God's glory? What we see is in Genesis 2, we start dipping our toes not just into the language of marriage, but also gender roles. And what we see is it's not so much an issue or discussion about whether a, a man or woman can do all the same things. You know, it's not a discussion like, I can do everything you can do, or I can do, what is, how's the song go? Every, anything you can do, I can do better. Is that, uh, that sounds more like trying to move parallel or introduces opportunity for tension. In marriage, man and woman aren't supposed to work parallel, but together as one. That's the language. Everything we are reading about is revealing God's heart and purpose for created things, including marriage. So men, if we pick on someone, suppose you have been called to a place. I would suggest you are. In it, you should be stewarding your gifts, your time, working as unto the Lord, we might say. And, and through that, by the way, you hope to establish your witness. You should be in the Bible, learning what God is calling you to do. You are responsible, if we're going off Genesis 2, to learn and do the work in the place God calls you. Do the work. Again, Genesis 2 is establishing something to help us understand the scope of what God's plan for us is throughout all of Scripture. 
It sounds kind of like some of those portions of our time studying James. Do the work. And if you're married, God has expectations of the kind of work you will do in your marriage. A wife similarly should consider, if God is being glorified in these ways and calling my husband in these ways, and I want God to receive glory, I'm going to help as best I can as my man submits to God's decrees. And I'll admit up front that that could look like a lot of things and definitely presents issues on both sides, really, if your spouse is not a Christian. But if possible, the motivation for doing things as a wife should come from a desire to join your husband in things God has called him to do. Now, I'm not saying that God can't call you to other things as well, but if it interferes interferes with your ability to demonstrate a Genesis 2 kind of a relationship with your spouse, I would question, where is that other calling actually coming from? And whose voice are you listening to? We also find in Genesis 2 an answer to a basic question. Why do we get married? Like, you can have union and come together without marriage, right? Well, we read in verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother, and he's united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Something new starts. This is a clear allusion to marriage for any Jew reading it. Point blank. The word leave and united are the same kinds of words that are used about entering into or breaking a covenant. You leave one strong bond, the family formed by your parents, and start another family with your spouse. And the expectation of that relationship is that it will be a covenant relationship. This is also one of the reasons we just say, yeah, get married. Get married because it isn't just a strong commitment in the Bible. It's not a promise that in the integrity of your heart you never plan on breaking. Covenants use legally binding language. They also have usually very recognizable starts. If you read through the Old Testament, at what happens when a covenant is being made, often there's a ceremony of sorts. There's a formality that carries weight and ramifications for breaking it. So while we don't get the description of a wedding here, a Jew looks at this and sees marriage, and so do I, and so should we. When Jesus talks about what God has joined together, let no man separate, in that conversation, he's talking about marriage and referencing Genesis chapter 2. We see clear statements here on the function of a man and a woman in a relationship that is a covenant-bound relationship with expectation that this relationship is going to result in God receiving glory. Which, if that isn't the goal of our marriages, what are we doing? This is, we're only in Genesis chapter 2. Wow. Now some of you might say, but Alex, that's in a marriage. This is husband-wife language. This isn't prescriptive for all interactions between men and women outside of that intimate relationship. There are some clear limitations, whether you're in this marriage relationship or outside, but let's think about this. I have a daughter. She's four. There may come a day where she becomes very interested in some boy. to the point, to the point of dreaming 
about life and marriage with him. And if this boy is doing nothing or very little for God with his life, not serving God or not stewarding the gifts God has given him where he has been placed, or not even looking to better know God's will, certainly I would expect that he's not showing any inclination towards similarly, similarly investing in my daughter and inviting her into what God is calling him to. I, I'm not going to buy the argument. Oh, Dad, when we get married, he'll change. We know that's not how that works. Her dreams about what life married to that man should be significantly formed by dreaming about what God is doing in his life currently and in her life currently and what that would look like with them together. And if he's not working in the place God has placed him, dad's going to have some issues. <laughs> so when you look forward to chapters like Ephesians chapter 5, we find an idea of mutual submission to one another, but we also read language of the man being the head of the family like Christ is the head of the church and language of a wife submitting to the husband. We should think about the function and purpose and glory that is painted for us in Genesis chapter 2, that it is a story about stewardship and working where God places you and helping and being co-image bearers together, one flesh, bringing God glory in miraculous and God-ordained ways. The truth of Genesis should carry through really well if you're both believers. But if you're not both believers, we actually get this idea out of 2 Corinthians 6, 14, the idea of being unequally yoked to an unbeliever. And it starts to make sense too if you've been in Genesis chapter 2. It's like entering into a covenant with someone who doesn't submit to the same rules. You marry the person who is already exhibiting Genesis 2 kind of spouse material, even if imperfectly. Now there's plenty of scripture to show that my daughter is not going to find the perfect man. And I will have to remind myself of that when I start judging him. We should rightly expect that as males and as females, we are trying to discover and live out all of God's purposes for our life. We see here an example of some of what biblical manhood and womanhood is. It's not exhaustive. It's not the totality. But it certainly is part. And our expectation is that function associated with gender that is woven to our purpose is not all only expressed in marriage. So we could say it's important how men lead and relate to women even outside of marriage relationships, that there are things they should exhibit and work on. Similarly, women and how they relate to other men. We find that whether male or female, the image bearer of God has the ultimate aim of giving glory to God in all things. And the ways that is accomplished can, as, and as we usually see between genders, is different. And the rest of scripture bears out that truth. So this is a different mindset and expectation of what God might be working on in our lives when we approach scriptures about roles of men and women in the New Testament. And what we often see if we apply it to ourselves is no one gets off the hook. If I'm honest, as we bring things to a close, though I imagine a number of you would want me to spend time exploring every stance that could be taken, and some of you are, thank you for not doing that, Alex. As we bring things to a close, I want to bring the conversation closer to me. 
because there are things in my life I am so sure God has called me to. And as a man, I don't always work on those things or in those places like I should. Like I don't always care about my relationship with God enough or the people he's put under me. And that, yes, includes my marriage. In fact, you know my wife, a shocker, I know. My wife sees things in my life, these things that God calls me to. And you know what she has the nerve to do? (laughs) She tries to help me. And sometimes I just don't want it. Whether because of pride or anger or whatever. When I read Genesis 2 and know in our relationship, she has the opportunity to do things that will increase our ability together to bring God glory and how she interacts with me. And I shut her down. Not all the time. Not all the time. As I was preparing this, I realized, man, I do that way more than I would want to share in any detail. And as I was preparing this message, I had to ask myself, when that happens, is it because I'm thinking more about my glory than God's glory? And so wise, when you look at your husband, what are the things you are doing in your marriage that Clearly show your desire to join him and to see God glorified in your relationship. And for all of us, regardless of marital status, when we look at our created purpose in humanity, I find something really strange happens. Sometimes, even when we're doing the things that give God glory, we are giving God glory where and how we want to give him that glory. And not necessarily where and how he asks us to. So we end with these questions. How are we bringing God glory? How are we bringing God glory in our marriages, in our families, in relationships, at work, at school, at Publix, at the park, when we're at the beach surveying creation, feeling the breeze, seeing the birds when we're walking down the street, when we wake up, how we spend our time, the list goes on and on. If our created purpose and the chief end of man is to bring God glory, how are we bringing God glory? Let's pray together.